Right, okay, I will start. Greg Bailey, and I'm going to talk about the Mahabharata. What I'll do, I'll talk for 45 minutes, and then we can have some question time if it's desired. I'm quite happy if, any, if what I'm saying is unclear, or if you want to ask a question, just break in. That, that's one good way to do it. Now, to try and talk about the Mahabharata in 45 minutes is impossible. The text is huge. And I've got a copy of the Sanskrit version at home. It's about 20-odd volumes. But for all that, it's one of the most important texts in the world, without a doubt. And I start with a quote from a website in Delhi in 2013, which compares Narendra Modi, who's the present Prime Minister of India, and the Chief Minister of Delhi, the, the Delhi City Council, Arvind Kejriwal. He says that they're similar to the um, Pandavas of the Mahabharata. The Pandavas are one of the sets of brothers. And then he says, if there is one lesson from 2013, it is this. The collective voice of the people has descended to destroy the rule of Adharma. I'll explain what Dharma means later on, but we can say it means that which is in opposition to what how people should really behave. Some people translate it as um, against the law or against morality. It's untranslatable, in fact. This is not the first time the quote goes on. It has just happened. This won't be the last. Modi and Kejriwal shouldn't forget this. Whoever forgets his Dharma would be the next on the list to lose office. So, and this is one of literally hundreds and hundreds of references in the in contemporary India, Indian press and electronic media to the Mahabharata. Now, I'm going to cite uh, a verse from the 56th... 50, my daughter's just turned up. The 56th chapter of the first book, Arata Shastram Idam Punyam, Dharma Shastram Idam Param, Moksha Shastram Idam Proktam, Vyasen Amita Buddhina, Samprati Achakshate Chaiva Akyasyanti Tata Pare. That's the only Sanskrit I'll read out. Which translates as the Mahabharata is a treatise on wealth. It's a meritorious treatise on correct living and the supreme treatise on spiritual liberation, which Vyasa, of immeasurable intellect, has promulgated. Some recite it now, and still others will recite it in the future. Bear in mind that this was probably composed about 2,000 years ago, these particular words. So they're quite prescient. The Mahabharata is still being recited, sometimes in Sanskrit, but most prob probably in vernacular languages like Hindi and so forth. And I'll talk about that a little soon. The, this particular verse is important for telling us something about the contents of the text. And it refers to arta, which means material wealth. Arta Shastra is politics. Material wealth, the manipulation of power. It also teaches us about dharma, or about morality, and the way that the various groups of beings in the world, gods, humans and animals, should live in relation to each other. Then it's going to tell us about moksha. Moksha means liberation from the daily realms of life, escape from rebirth and so forth. It's a higher spiritual goal that could be reached. It's a bit like nirvana for the Buddhists.
And so the Mahabharata also is going to teach us about that. There's a fourth component, which is not mentioned in this particular list, but which is extremely important and flows throughout the Mahabharata, and that is karma. Not K-A-R-M-A, which we all know, which means action and can mean other has other technical meanings, but karma, K-A, with a dash over the A-M-A, which means desire, sensuality and eroticism. And the Mahabharata is full of that, even though at various times it's frowned upon. Now, so that gives us a, a bit of a clue, and I'll expand on that when I summarise the content of the plot. How big is the Mahabharata? Too bloody big. That's the least that can be said. And you might try and read it right through. Even there's an English translation done in the 1880s, 1890s in India, done in Victorian English, 12 volumes of 400 pages each. There's a new English translation that's been coming out from the University of Chicago since 1975. We're up to volume six, and a colleague of mine in America is doing volume 12, which is the long, longest. He spent 12 years on the first half, and that was published in 2004. The second part, which is difficult, I must say, um, is still not out, and he's still working on it. So it's a massive text, and the best thing, of course, is to read it in the original because you find new things all the time. I've been reading it for years and years. I haven't read the whole thing through in Sanskrit, but probably about a third of it. And even if I go back to earlier parts that I've read, I find new things coming out all the time. So I never, never get sick of reading the text. It's like immersing yourself in Shakespeare, I suppose. You can just find new things all the time. So, as it, as it has evolved over the past 2,000 years, it's not a single text. It's a library of texts having a variety of close family resemblances. That is, there's different versions, but all have a similar kind of plot with variations on that particular plot. All ultimately reach back to a Sanskrit original which has been transmitted to us in many regional versions varying in size from 75,000 verses to 125,000 two-line verses. The 75,000 version is the one that was produced in the so-called critical edition produced between 1944 and 1969 in Pune in Western India on the basis of several hundred manuscripts. The problem is the earliest manuscript really only goes back to about the 9th century, and most of the manuscripts are in the 16th or 17th century. You can go to India to, manus to, to manuscript libraries and you can Xerox them if you like, and a lot of them are now being microfilmed and digitalised. And so <clears throat> there are many different versions of this particular text. There are commentaries on it in Sanskrit, which are extremely valuable, but only one's ever been edited, a 16th century commentary, and there are earlier ones. The reason why they're invaluable is because they give an indigenous <coughs> view of the meaning of certain words, and because the people who composed the commentary, their knowledge of the language is much better than someone like mine's will ever be, and also because they were brought up in the tradition of recitation and the tradition of study of these particular texts and other ones. We usually call these people pundits, 
which has now been debased to, to, to refer to people who predict election results. But nonetheless, that's uh, what it begins with. Now, the Sanskrit versions of this text are probably the longest, but there are some very lengthy versions in vernacular languages. There was one composed in the Tamil language, which is not related to Sanskrit, in the 14th century. We've got a copy of it in the Latrobe Library, which is in four volumes of about 600 pages each. <coughs> there are cop versions in Assamese, in um, Kannada, which is a Western Indian language, Bengali, Gujarati, and so forth. And so these versions in vernacular languages are very useful because people can understand them. Sanskrit ceased to be a spoken language about the year dot, let's say the beginning of the common era, and people could probably still understand it, but it was mainly the Brahmins and people in courts, that is the royal courts, who would understand spoken Sanskrit. And kings would often patronise the performances of parts of epic literature from both the Mahabharata and the other great epic, the Ramayana. And they probably also promoted plays about the life of the Buddha, because the life of the Buddha was very important and represented in literature quite frequently. Now, so for most people, access to the Mahabharata has been through these texts, these recitations in languages that they know themselves. And so in contemporary India, that will be in Hindi and in English. But they've also been recited or, or demonstrated in dramatic performances of some of its episodes. And in Katakali dancing and Kudiyadam dancing in Western India, you will find episodes from the Mahabharata being played and being performed and so forth. From about the 6th or 7th century, frescoes for, of particular episodes from the Mahabharata were incised onto temple walls. And usually these are dramatic parts, where the parts of the battle, for example, or where Draupadi, one of the principal heroines, is being disrobed um, in a particular hall surrounded by wise men and kings. More recently, the Mahabharata has been disseminated through filmic and television um, versions. We've all heard of Bollywood, but there's a lesser um, film industry in Tamil Nadu and Chennai as well. But from about the 1920s, the so-called mythological film has taken much of its inspiration from the Mahabharata. And finally, we might add that from 1987 to 1990, there was a version in 95 episodes shown on Indian television a bit in Sanskrit, mostly in Hindi, with English subtitles. Every mo Sunday morning it was shown to an audience of 400 million people. That's significant. That really is... I don't, I don't know what home and away and all these soap operas and so forth get here, but certainly nothing like that of what Seinfeld might have got in America at its, at its height. But 400 million people, that's significant for a range of reasons because it shows people's knowledge of the Mahabharata. It also shows how it can be used in contemporary political and cultural discourse, which in fact it has been um, used. Now, technically speaking, although it might be regarded as the earliest text of Hinduism, and there's technical problems here of defining what Hinduism is, it is not as popular today as at any other time since its likely completion date at the beginning of the Common Era. We're still debating 
about when it was composed. We usually say between 200 BC and 200 is a common era. We just don't know. The dating of old Sanskrit literature and Buddhist literature is a house of cards. We don't have much external evidence. But we do have a little bit of external evidence. But anyway, its popularity throughout the ages means it might be called India's national epic. And right-wing politicians of the Bharatiya Janata Party, the Hindu People's Party, which are in power now, have been utilising it for political purposes. And it can be used in this manner because it has shaped a particular civilizational vision, at least for those who have been Hindus and who continue to be Hindus. Even in the texts of other Indian religions, such as Buddhism and Jainism, the Mahabharata has been deliberately noticed. There's references to it. And the Mughal emperor, Akbar, who was an enlightened figure, unlike some of his successors, particularly um, Aurangzeb, the last of the Mughal emperors, had a Persian translation, a complete Persian translation, undertaken in the 16th century. Persian was the court language of the Mughals. Even though they originally spoke a Turkic language, Persian was the court language. And so we have a Persian translation under, uh, ordered by Akbar, who himself was probably dyslexic, but he was an intellectual and very interested in religions. So the Mahabharata is a textual and recitational tradition that deliberately seeks to come to terms with a social, economic and political base on northern India. We think it's northern India, but was probably taken to the south about 2,000 years ago by a group of Brahmins. In northern India, that had been undergoing a transformation from small to large-scale societies since the 5th century BCE. There's lots of archaeological evidence that northern Indian and central Indian society, which had probably once been essentially tribal, consisting of tribal, tribal nomads and people living in villages growing rice and other crops during the monsoon, <coughs> were witnessing a transformation into large cities. The archaeological evidence makes this clear with huge walls, with uh, <coughs> palaces and so forth, and the beginning of temple architecture, which is much later. And whenever there's a change in social structure and economic, the, the order, or the organisation of economy, this has an effect on the way that people interact with each other. We can, we've seen this evidence of this in the last weeks, two weeks in the USA, quite clearly with the disaffection and so forth of profound changes in the economy that have occurred. The same thing happened over a much longer period in ancient India. And the Mahabharata attempts to come to terms with these changes. As such, it delineates and explores the changes that involve the transformation from tribal societies into large-scale monarchies, a stage of transition that had been in process, or progress, I might say, for several hundred years before it was the text was composed. At the same time, and it had to be this, it's very much a human interest story, full of action and unrequited love, full of angry ascetics who curse people. There's one famous example of a Brahmin who has a crane in a tree above him, this crane shits on him, so he curses it and the poor crane dies straight away and the Brahmin feels tremendous guilt. But there's all of these kinds of, of um, human interest stories that have made it so easy 
for it to be translated onto the television screen in soap opera mode. Dating. Okay, I've already alluded to that. We can trace the dating of the original components of the text back to the beginning of the Common Era, as its principal characters are mentioned in Buddhist texts of the first century of the AD, ACE, the so-called Jataka Tales, 543 texts about the previous lives of the Buddha. And they mention the Mahabharata and they criticise certain aspects of the text, which is interesting because it shows that it must have been becoming popular. The Buddhists were very good corporate fundraisers, the Buddha himself in particular, and Buddhist, Buddhism expands dramatically from the beginning of the second century BCE onwards. And it, it's very successful in attracting money from corporate groups, from kings, from wealthy people, even Buddhist nuns. A lot of the inscriptions show that Buddhist nuns gave money. Now, in part, the Brahmins who composed the Mahabharata were upset about the patronage being received by the Buddhist monks. And when the Mahabharata was composed, the fact that it's referred to in a number of Buddhist texts in different languages indicates that the Buddhists were becoming aware that this kind of new text was becoming very popular indeed on the ground. So if we regard these Buddhist texts as the first century of the Common Era, then we can say with some confidence that the Mahabharata was composed by then. Unfortunately, the earliest inscriptional evidence we have is of a Cambodian inscription of the fifth century of the Common Era, where a copy of the Mahabharata and a couple of other narrative texts were given as a present to a particular king. Inscriptions in India are almost always dated, so they're very valuable for, for establishing chronologies. It is likely that the text, when it was being composed, was appropriated or taken over by the Brahmins, the highest class in Hindu society. They were the educated class, educated in, in Sanskrit, that is, even though the lower classes, of course, had their own stories, which they recited in their own languages. The Brahmins had long been developing a view of society that placed their values in the centre of what society normatively should be. And elite groups, so-called elite groups, I'm reluctant to use that term now, it's become a dirty word in the last two weeks. So-called elite groups always try and fact do that. It was the Brahmins. As a heterogeneous corporate group, I say heterogeneous because we can't say all the Brahmins were the same, they always all thought the same, they didn't. There's no doubt about that. So it was they, as an heterogeneous corporate group, who had command of Sanskrit as a vehicle for communication across a whole range of emerging vernacular languages and with the intellectual vanguard for a new Hindu view of society. They were the ones that propagated it. Kings often sent Brahmins into frontier areas and gave them land on the condition that the Brahmins would teach particular texts and teach a view of Hindu kingship and make the people living there, often who are marginal people on the outskirts of society, who would encourage these people to give allegiance to a particular king. So in a sense, they were cult, the cultural vanguard and they took the Mahabharata with them. Now, let's talk a bit about the plot, which is going to be, um, well, I'll, I'm just going to try and summarise it as best I can. The Sanskrit version of the text is divided into 18 books, 
of which the smallest is about four chapters. The longest is 341. <laughs> so, and the, the longest one is the most difficult by far. It's centred on a plot built around a massive conflict between two sets of parallel cousins, the five Pandava brothers, the sons of Pandu, King called Pandu, and the Kauravas, who a hundred sons of King Dhritarashtra, who in fact were conceived in a pot, conceived in a pot, and then there was oil put on the pot, it was all <coughs> taken and, and then it was divided and in, put into a hundred small pots and they all were create, created from that. Births outside of vaginal births are very common in this kind of literature, very common indeed. Now, Dhritarashtra, the father of the Kauravas, has an immensely ambitious son, Duryodhana, called Duryodhana. We see these people in politics all the time. The eldest of the five Pandava brothers is a figure called Yudhishthira, which means he who is firm in battle. And he is the rightful heir to the kingship of the northwestern city of Hastinapura and its surrounding territory. Hastinapura is about 200 k's northwest of present-day Delhi. So Yudhishthira is not king, but he's, he's the rightful king. Um, now. The, the man who was king is Dhritarashtra, who in fact is really only filling in for Yudhishthira's father, who has gone into the forest to become an ascetic. He's abdicated, as it were. Now, the five Pandava brothers and the, hundreds, and the hundred sons of Dhritarashtra are brought up in the same palace, and they're always vying with each other, fighting with each other. They're trained by weapons masters, and they're always <coughs> involved in conflict, and the Pandavas always win. And this arouses great jealousy in this nasty piece of work, Duryodhana. <clears throat> now, Duryodhana, his father, Dhritarashtra, is a temporary ruler, but he's ineligible, truly, to be king because he's blind. In the ancient Indo-European view of kingship, a king had to be perfect in body and in mind. And because this man was blind, he couldn't, in fact, um, rule. But he was very strong. Physically, he was very strong. So he's the temporary ruler, and he does declare in the first book that Yudhishthira, the eldest of the five Pandava brothers, to be the rightful king. But at the beginning of the second book, a famous Sabhaparavan, the book of the assembly hall, Yudhishthira is about to become king. But as part of his special consecration ritual, he has to perform two rituals, the Rajasuya, which means something like the birth of the king and the Ashwamedha, the horse sacrifice. As part of this, the first ritual, he's required to participate in a dice game where he loses everything, loses the lot. He's cheated out of everything. He even gambles away his four brothers when he's got nothing left, and he gambles away their joint wife, Draupadi. These five brothers have got one wife who they meet in the first book. In fact, the third brother, Arjuna, um, engages with Draupadi, and they're coming back. They're coming back in, from the bush into a camping area, and, and the, the, their mother, they've got two, two lots of, they've got two mothers. The three oldest have got one mother, Kunti, and the other, the other two have got, um, I've forgotten her name, it'll come to me. But Kunti says, Share, she thinks they're bringing back food, and she says, share it all together. In fact, they're bringing back a wife. 
so they all have to be married. In fact, all of them have second wives. They all have tribal wives, much lower class, much lower caste. And um, so anyway, he loses, Yudhishthira loses his, their joint wife, Draupadi, and she is brought into the assembly hall. She's in another room. She's having her period, and she's virtually raped. She's not actually raped, but all her clothes come flying off and so forth, and um, some of the men, in a very ochreish manner, you would might say, make signs, make gesticulations that all, all imply that she's a sexual object, which, of course, she is throughout the epic, but this is a wrong thing to do in, in a hall where her husbands are present and where all these old wise men who are deliberating on, on the ritual of kingship are present as well. Anyway, the results of this first dicing game are annulled, but then there is a second dicing game and he loses the lot again. Yudhishthira loses everything again. And in later Hindu literature, there's all sorts of argumentation about why, in fact, he engaged in the dice game at all. And some texts say it's by fate. I think in the 20th chapter of the second book it says he had to go because it's fate. Then he says, no, I had to engage in it because Dhritarashtra, the, the acting king, was my father and I had to obey his, obey his rule. And these debates go on throughout the Mahabharata. And Draupadi in particular, the joint wife, really gets stuck into this character Yudhishthira all the time. Yudhishthira is like Hamlet. He doesn't exactly know what he wants to do. He's supposed to be a king, but he just wants to become an ascetic and go and contemplate his navel in the forest, live a quiet life, a quiet contemplative life. And so that really, those two parameters define his character and make the whole, make him a very interesting character. Anyway, they lose everything again, and then they're acquired, they're exiled into the forest for 12 years, then they've got to spend a year in another kingdom without being recognised, that is incognito. The third book, which is the second longest, 280 chapters, describes their time of exile in the forest, a time when they experience violent encounters with demonic figures and meet sages who give them all sorts of teachings which will be invaluable for their future careers as kings. Arjuna, the third of the brothers, and the one who's most suitable to be the ideal king, has an encounter with the god Shiva, and Shiva he really is a non-conformist in Hindu mythology and is always getting into trouble. And he's, he often destroys the world when the right time for it becomes. Shiva and Arjuna have a fight, and of course Shiva, can't, uh, Shiva wins, but he gives him a famous bow called the Gandiva bow, which Arjuna will use. In book four, they live disguised in the kingdom Virata. They engage in cattle raids, that is rustling, which still happens in India today, against the Kauravas. And in book five, they return to the kingdom of Hastinapura amidst great political tension because King Dhritarashtra has been ruling virtually as a puppet king, allowing his son Duryodhana to pull the strings and Duryodhana, in the first book, he's already made an attempt to, to assassinate the Pandavas by having the house they were living in burnt down, but they managed to escape from that. And he's been engaging in diplomatic work and um, getting kings on side who will help him when the great battle finally comes. 
At this point, Krishna, who we've all heard of, the word Krishna means black in Sanskrit, Krishna, who's a portion of the great god Vishnu, Krishna has descended to earth in order to restore the normative way of life, dharma, at a time when dharma has been um, has, has, has gone by the wayside on the earth, Krishna now intervenes and engages in diplomatic activity in order to bring the Pandavas back to some kind of just power. The Pandavas who were exiled into the forest and are now, have now spent their 13 years in exile. But his attempts fail because Duryodhana's greed is too great. <clears throat> All he wants is power for power's sake and we know that's a very common theme amongst powerful people. All the kings of neighbouring kingdoms line up either on the side with the Pandavas or on the side of the Kauravas, that is Duryodhana and his lot, and battle is imminent, imminent despite the intense diplomatic effort that Krishna in fact makes. At the beginning of the sixth book, Krishna becomes Arjuna, the third son of the five, third of the five Pandavas, he becomes his chariot driver. And he drives Arjuna into the middle of the two facing armies. Then we have this Kurukshetra, Dharmakshetra, I think Kaurava Samagata or something. That is the opening verse of the Bhagavad Gita. Most people here will have heard of the Bhagavad Gita, a terribly overrated text which really only becomes popular in the 18th and 19th century. It was important earlier, and it was commented upon by quite a few uh, important intellectuals writing in Sanskrit, but it's become very important because it's only 18 chapters. It's easy to read as opposed to the Mahabharata, and it, it brilliantly tries to integrate three fundamental, three different kinds of religious streams that are developed by that particular time. And Krishna, Arjuna, when he drives into the middle of the army, he says, no, I'm not going to fight. This is horrendous. Too many people are going to be killed. He was a kind of a conscientious objector, as it were. And in the second and third chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna spends time saying, get up, you've got to fight. You have no choice. You're a kshatriya, you're the second class, the warrior class, you must fight. Then he goes on to say, you must do your duty without question. And as the verses go on, by he starts his discourse to Arjuna becomes more religiously inclined, and Arjuna becomes Krishna's devotee. And in the eleventh book of the Gita, Bhagavad Gita, Krishna reveals himself as the god Vishnu. Krishna looks into his mouth and sees the entire universe in his mouth, and it's absolutely overwhelmed. It's an emotionally charged experience. We call it a theophany, and these occur about half a dozen times in the Mahabharata. Then, in all later Sanskrit literature, we have these kind of theophanies. You get them in the Old Testament as well, this kind of vision of a deity, which changes a person's perception of the world. Now, so, everything set up to the battle, Arjuna agrees to fight. Now, then, from the sixth to the ninth books, the huge battle, which takes 18 days, 18 is a very important number, is described. Each book climaxes with the killing of one of the four field marshals on the Kaurava side. 
figures, these four figures, um, Bhishma, Drona, Karana and Shalya, particularly Bhishma and Drona, are very important figures. They were um, fighting teachers, they, they taught the Pandavas and the Kauravas how to fight. And the figure of Drona in particular is very important because he's a Brahmin. And Brahmins weren't supposed to fight using weapons. Their weapon was their, their word. But Drona is a Brahmin. And the theme of mixed caste people, mixed class, I don't like the word caste, it's too difficult to distinguish, comes out continually in the Mahabharata. In, the, in these books, there are many... So at the end of each of the 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th, the field marshal, the general of the Kaurava army dies, sometimes in very um, unfair circumstances. And Krishna tells the, the Pandavas, kill these people, it doesn't matter if it's in accord with Dharma or not, they've got to be killed. And that in fact happens, and the, the mode of their killing gives rise to a lot of controversy later on. In these books, there are many hints that Krishna is directing the entire battle. And the whole notion of free will and fate runs right throughout the Mahabharata, as it does in epic literature in all cultures, basically. Okay, the tenth book describes a night raid after the conclusion of the battle, when the surviving forces of the defeated side take revenge and kill many of the survivors of the victorious side when they're sleeping. I should say that in the ninth book, Duryodhana, who wanted to be king, this greedy, ambitious person, was killed, was killed by Bhishma, the second of the Pandava brothers. Duryodhana went and hid in a pool below ice. It must have been pretty cold. He was found, and um, Duryodhana rattles with him and kills him and wipes his blood on his thigh. So it's a very dramatic scene. And in the tenth book, when we think the battle's over, those remainders left over from the defeated side want to take revenge. So they go into a camp and kill most of the remaining people who are living. So there's been an enormous amount of bloodshed, an enormous amount of anger and so forth that has arisen from this. The next book, the 11th book, was called Stripara the Book of the Women, which describes the grief and wailing of all the women on seeing the massive loss of life that's taken place. The 12th and 13th books, are the longest in the epic, and they really consist of philosophical or discourses about philosophy, about kingship, how a king should rule, a bit about economics, about the four classes, that is the Brahmins, the warriors, the merchant uh, class, and the Shudras, which are the, the servants of the others. They talk about these at length. Chapter 169 to 341 of the 12th book gives us a view of all of the prominent philosophical positions held in ancient India at that time, and they're highly technical. The language is, is abbreviated and difficult, and it's interesting to see the extent to which they attack um, the Buddhist teachings, though they do it in a very obscure and elliptical manner. They don't seem to want to attack the Buddhists, and we think this might be because they're not allowed to attack the Buddhists, just like journalists in contemporary Australia have to be very careful about what they say about politicians and so forth. In the 14th book, Yudhishthira, finally king, performs the horse sacrifice, which means a horse is let loose, a bunch of warriors follow it, 
and wherever it goes, the people who live in that area have to share allegiance to the new king. And so this, this happens, um, and it, and, but there's a lot of philosophical material in the 14th book, and another version of the Bhagavad Gita is recited there. Finally, in the last four books, which thankfully are quite short, we find um, the Pandavas have ruled the kingdom of Hastinapura for quite a while, and then they start walking towards the north. Why? That's the auspicious position, um, direction. They go to the Himalayas, and if you've been to the Himalayas, yes, they are auspicious, they're fantastic. When you go off the North Indian plain and go up to Darjeeling or up to Kathmandu, you can really, it, everything changes, the atmosphere, the vegetation and everything changes. Anyway, we think everything should be good for these people, they should all go straight to heaven. In fact, what happens? Each of the, there's six of them going, the five brothers and their joint wife, and they all drop dead. They all drop dead in turn. And when I started reading this, the first time I read it, I was reading it in translation, I thought, why is this happening? Anyway, Yudhishthira, who in a sense is the most holy of them all, is the only one left alive. And he's walking along, and he's got this damn dog with him. And dogs are regarded as very impure in Indian culture for a whole range of reasons. And the, the god Indra sends down a chariot from heaven and saying, get into here, get into this chariot, you can come to heaven. And um, Yudhishthira says, I'm not going unless this dog can go. And Indra says, abandon this dog. By abandoning the dog, you will gain heaven. Indra, Yudhishthira says, no, not leaving the dog behind. And when, he, when these words were heard, the dog assumes a humanoid form, in fact, the god Dharma, who in fact is Yudhishthira's father. And so Yudhishthira then goes to heaven, but before that he goes to hell and sees his four brothers and his wife in hell, and he sees all the baddies, the Kauravas, led by Duryodhana, all enjoying themselves in, in heaven, and he doesn't know why this is happening, but then he's told, well, you've got to get rid of your bad karma, and then you'll spend eons in heaven with your good karma and so forth. Okay, that's a very brief summary. Meanings. No summary can reveal the subtleties and ambiguities of this great poem, which defines a new normative mode of living for people of the four higher classes as defined by the Brahmins. Underlying all of this is an exhaustive treatment of the concept of dharma, dh. A-R-M-A, coming from root dri, which means to uphold. It's an untranslatable word, often rendered as law um, in all European languages. It tends, tends to be rendered as law, but really having the more comprehensive meaning of normative living, that is how people in fact should live. It's like morals, it's like law, it's how um, animals, humans and God should interact with each other, how humans should relate to the earth if they take the environment seriously and this kind of thing. Now, the third, twelfth and thirteenth books of the Mahabharata contain a full digest of instructive teachings about Dharma and illustrate these with case studies in the form of sub-stories, that is, we might call them myths. The Sanskrit word is called Upakyana, which means short narrative. But in these myths, which are a bit like um, soap operas, they can explore how Dharma itself, as an overarching code of behaviour, works out in practice. 
and often it doesn't work out in practice. As we, off, we know, people who are honest in society tend up, often tend up be, end up being hurt more than people who are not honest at all. And the Mahabharata explores that kind of conundrum, that kind of contradiction, by looking at the whole notion of dharma and applying it in particular case studies. Now, throughout the, throughout the Mahabharata, the figure of Yudhishthira, this noble figure, is depicted as the soul of Dharma. He's called Dharmatman. Atman means um, self, it can mean person. He whose soul, herself, is, the, is Dharma. It's in, he's the embodiment of Dharma in all things. The person who takes the long-term view that is always consistent with Dharma, underlying like his second brother Bhima, who strikes out physically without in reflection in attempting to right whatever he considers to be wrong. So Yudhishthira follow, follows agreed-upon convention, that is, dharma, that is best for the world in the long term, rather than individual predilection. And I could give many examples from contemporary politics, which I won't. However, Yudhishthira breaks dharma once in the eighth book when he lies about the death of the field marshal Drona's son, Ashwataman. And this is a really significant period, Drona, can only be defeated, will only be defeated if he stops fighting. He stops fighting when it's said that his son Ashwatthaman is killed. The un and the people say, the Pandavas say, he'll only believe it if, if Yudhishthira tells it because everyone knows that Yudhishthira is honest. Yudhishthira says it, then whispers the elephant Ashwatthaman. It's not the son of Drona. As soon as he does that, his chariot, which is being which has been flying about 15 or 20 centimetres off the ground, immediately falls to the ground in a very dramatic performance. So, in addition, we find a famous example of Dharma being broken when Yudhishthira gambles away his wife. And there's all sorts of discussion whether, in fact, he possessed his wife because he'd gambled himself away before he gambled away his wife. And all of these old men in the assembly hall who are supposed to be experts on dharma really don't know what to do and some of them just keep quiet because they're scared to open their, their voice. But the whole theme of the thing is the difficulty in dealing with, with dharma. Perhaps the most glaring illustration of the ambiguity of dharma is in the very war itself. But because, because besides the actual war between humans, there is an ongoing conflict between divine antagonists, the Asuras and the Devas, the demons and the gods. The demons, the gods representing Dharma, the demons representing its opposite. Often the gods, of course, act in an appalling manner and the demons act in a very, very noble manner. But by definition, they have to be different. In the Mahabharata's first book, the personified earth, personified as a woman, in all Indo-European languages, earth is a feminine is used in the feminine gender, whichever language um, you want to, but in Sanskrit too. She's so upset that the earth, everyone on the earth is fighting with each other, it's in a terrible state. She says to Brahma, the old god Brahma, you've got to do something. And so Brahma says the gods have got to be reborn on earth. The demons have already been re reborn as the Karavas and they have this tremendous fight and they get rid of it. Okay, I'll, I'm almost finished and um, then we can have questions if there are any. Now, 
there's much more to the Mahabharata than simply an explanation, than a discussion of Dharma. It presents a, a complete view of what society might be like in the future. And in this, it places emphasis on the four classes, the four classes of Brahman, warrior, merchant, and so forth. But it also allows for people outside of these classes. And it presents propositions, but at different places it undermines these propositions as well. So in that sense, it offers the whole possibility of debating and questioning of foundations. Okay, we could also argue from, from, from the point of view of, of Indian religion, it brings together the three main religious dreams of rit ritual performance, that is performance of sacrifice, of asceticism, that is go the yogins going out into the forest to focus on religious teachings and folk meditate on themselves and so forth and doing advanced forms of yoga, much more advanced than someone like me has ever done. Um, but, and then the third one is devotion, devotion to a particular deity. I mean, you can go out into the, in, in, into the forest and spend years standing on one leg, which people still do, um, or you can put all your efforts into performing devotion to a particular god, performing what's called pujas, a small ritual. You go and put flowers near an image of the god or you pay some brahmins and a priest and so forth to do this, and then say to the god, you're wonderful, and um, recite the thousand and eight names of the god, this kind of thing burn a stick of incense to the god Ganesha, which I always do before I go on an overseas trip because he's supposed to stop, um, put obstacles in the face of it and so forth. You can, so the Mahabharata brings out the importance of devotion and systematizes it in a theological and a practical manner. And the Bhagavad Gita it, it, within the sixth book does this in a much more summary manner and what it effectively does is bring together a whole range of different streams of religion that have been developing in India up to the time of its composition. Okay, let me get near the end. The ongoing popularity of the Mahabharata rests in part on its plot, its characters and its universal teaching. It's centred on a conflict that appears to have been brought into play in most of the kings of India and this means that ever since, he's become a paradigm, a model for other forms of conflict. Even today, the Mahabharata conflict is used as a metaphor for contemporary political activity invoked in political and media discourse. I gave a paper in Canberra earlier this year about the Mahabharata as a celebrity text in contemporary India. And there are hundreds and hundreds of references. If you just Google Mahabharata in contemporary politics, you find these everywhere. In addition, its most prominent characters, Yudhishthira, Duryodhana, Dhritarashtra, um, Arjuna, Bhishma and many others are so well known that they provide points of comparison for people within one's own family, believe it or not, and especially in public life as well, where prominent politicians are often conflated with particular figures in the Mahabharata. And the, this Indian People's Party have made particular gains out of using this. And a number of people, actresses and actors, who are in the 1987 to 1990 television version have in fact gone into politics. And the fact that they are in this particular um, television version got them a lot more votes. There's no doubt about that. Now, but in addition, 
in addition, it's, it's, it's always spoken about in families. And most families, most educated families, will have read some version of the Mahabharata, whether in English or in Hindi or in some other language. And they will know bits and pieces of it off by heart. They will know the most prominent episodes of it off by heart. And if someone mentions it, if it's on television or in, um, <coughs> in, in, in the newspaper, they will know the resonances of it straight away. In that sense, it's probably the most important text in India, apart from the Ramayana, the other great epic. But we need to... So it's still very important as a text for contextualising Indian culture because it brings into the present culture the past but also allows uh, <clears throat> some of the principal themes of the past to be used to analyse contemporary culture. But in the final analysis, it's not just a text for India. It was very important in Southeast Asia. There are old Javanese versions of the Mahabharata. There are versions in Balinese. It's, it's, it really is, in truth, a world text. I remember when Peter Brook, the British director, about 30 years ago, more, 40, did his version, which he had um, in a quarry in Adelaide. It was played in Perth, not here. Then there was a five-hour television version. So, in fact, the Mahabharata remains as a prominent celebrity text, and it really entered world literature almost soon after it was in fact composed, when it was taken to Southeast Asia with trading groups and so forth. It was in Tibet in about the 8th century. And it continues, it continues to grow and to inform our knowledge of both contemporary and ancient Indian culture. Okay, I'll shut up, that's enough. So, thanks for your attention. So, any questions or did anyone? getting cold again. <laughs> the rain's gone for the moment. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, the conflict between Buddhism and, and, and I, I assume it's Hinduism, this is, this is the basis of Hinduism as it, as it has evolved over time, and how has that tra how how have they brought that um, together? I'm not even sure what I'm asking because there's so many elements to this. But you've got the Dharma part of the the Buddhist religion. Yep. You've got the Dharma that's that's continually raised in this text. And how have they how have they resolved that 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 conflict? They haven't. It's a really I've been working on this for the last ten years. And if you, if you give me your email number, I'll, send, I'll email you some articles I've written about it. The, because I'm basically a Marxist in my view of how history unfolds and so forth, I was looking at this in terms of the economic success, the material success of Buddhists who are very good at integrating themselves in local economies, are involved in money lending and building dams. But the Buddha, he taught a particular view of Dharma. And if you read the early Pali texts which were basically about his life and his teachings. There's an enormous amount of material in them about Dharma. And so his Dharma, then Dharma was made into a kind of civil discourse in some inscriptions that were put up by the Emperor Ashoka between 250 and two, about 235 BCE, where Dharma, it's used in a different spelling than the Sanskrit spelling, becomes a civil discourse. And then... 
It occurs right back in the Rig Veda, in the earliest texts, and scholars, both Indian, traditional people, and contemporary Indologists have been disputing for years what this text means. We have a genre called Dharmashastra or Dharmasutra from about the second century BCE, where they present all sorts of precepts. They use the optative in Sanskrit, that is one should do this, one should do that, one should do the other thing. But it's always been a contested concept. And the Buddha himself, who was an ascetic, um, but also gave a lot of teaching He'd go to a local chamber of commerce and said, listen, you've got to do this, you've got to be honest. If you're going to make money, you've got to do this, that and the other thing. Um, I think that, the, that the, the Brahmins, who had their own particular view of how the world should run, um, were pretty well educated in Buddhist teachings. In the, there's been a list of, of converts, about a thousand converts to Buddhism in the early period, five or six hundred of Brahmins. Of course, the Buddhists wanted people to know that because they were in competition with them. But I think that the, the, because there are common, there's a common family of concepts in all of the main early Indian religions, um, these come through and they're contested and the Brahmins use the Mahabharata to try and bring out, bring out a particular view of what they think Dharma should be, even though it's still contested. Even though it's still, that's not a very good answer, but it's the best I can do. Um, I'd like to ask you a question leading on from that. Uh, as dharma is contested, to what extent does it become um, a term that's manipulated in contemporary politics in India? I think that's a very good question, John, and it certainly is being manipulated in contemporary India because they'll use dharma in Hindi, the word that they'll use, and the BJP will say that they're using dharma and that the other people are, are, are dharmic and so forth. The point is, because it is a contested term and it has such a broad range of meanings, you can actually, you can actually put all sorts of things into it. It's like jobs and growth, which was being used recently. You can put all sorts of meaning, of, of, of meaning into it. And so, yes, it has been. I haven't really studied how it's been manipulated. A former student of mine has studied, has studied the manipulation of the term and so forth. But it, 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 that, it, um, it can be manipulated by, by the media and by politicians. And someone like Modi, the present Prime Minister, who's very much of a Hindu nationalist and presents himself as a practising yogin and so forth, does you use it in particular ways. But it'd be worthwhile for someone to do a study in, contempt, in, the, in the language of the contemporary parliament in Hindi and to see how they use it. Okay. Thank um, you, talk. Um, you mentioned that the Bhagavad Gita uh, was elevated to a maybe unjustified level of prominence in the 17th and 18th century. Yep. Or 18th no, century. not unjustified, but it yep. wasn't really popular before that. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if you could talk about some of the context and what led to that. Okay. What led to that was when the Brits really um, went to India in a big way in 1750 and beyond, they had to try and work out um, how Hindus viewed law. So they started translating Hindu law texts. And somehow or other, I can't remember, they got onto the Bhagavad Gita because the Gita was a short text and it represented for them the essence of Hinduism. In addition, it was like the New Testament because it had a lot of material about how individuals should approach gods and, and, and so forth, or one particular god. 
And the Brits could never work out why the Indians were so-called polytheistic, even though Christianity itself, in fact, I think is polytheistic. There's, there's mother goddesses in the Catholic Church and so forth. But it was translated in 1784 by Wilkins. I think, I can't remember. And it became, the German romantics took it up, and von Schlegel, I think, in the 1818 or something, then tra was translated into German. Since then, it's been translated lots and lots of times because it's short, it's pithy, but also brings together, it tries to bring together several different um, religious streams. It had been commented upon by Shankara, by Ramanuja, by Madhva, by Abhinava Gupta, very, who are very important Indian intellectuals from the 8th century onwards. But it's unlikely that, it, because it was in Sanskrit, the, most, most, the average person wouldn't have been able to re understand it in any way. But it's become, it was taken up by the Hindu Renaissance, as we call it, by people who saw Hindu as being, Hinduism as being essentially what's called Advaita Vedanta. That is, a philosophical form of belief about the nature of the deity, the nature of the self being the same as the deity. And this was, was correlated with what the Hindu romantics, particularly what romantics in Germany, Schopenhauer and, and, and so forth, even Hegel wrote, the great philosopher wrote two essays in the Bhagavad Gita. And it all came from that, it all became very popular from that. For the, for the, for the Hare Krishnas, it's a very, very popular text. But I think for India, for the, before that, it wasn't so popular. The Mahabharata itself and the Ramayana were much more popular. The Ramayana because of its 16th century version in, 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 in Middle Hindi. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Now, if you give me... Thanks for coming.